Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This past week, there was two shootings, one in Wisconsin, where a man shot his fellow employees. Three people were hurt, except for the shooter. He was killed by police at that time. There was also another shooting this past week where a woman in Maryland killed three people before fatally turning the gun on herself. She worked at a Rite Aid distribution center. They said she reported like normal to work. There were reports that she was having an argument with another employee. Then she went out and started shooting a bunch of people. Like I said, she turned the gun on herself. These people that go out and shoot people for no seemingly no reason have always been a big mystery, so much so that the FBI now is trying to understand the psychology of mass shooters. We spoke to Zusha Ellenson, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, about that very thing. The Federal Bureau of Investigation is embarking on an effort to better understand the psychology behind these shooters. They're going to be doing interviews with people who have done mass shootings, kind of like they used to do back in the day where they interviewed serial killers to create profiles of them, like Mindhunters on Netflix. Here's Zusha Ellenson. These days, mass shooters are sort of one of the most feared killers in the country. And even though they sort of make up a tiny fraction of annual total of the homicides in the country, they still are the ones that seem to inspire the most fear, sort of like serial killers used to do. And in that same way, I think the FBI is trying to get into their heads to try to prevent these things from happening. Decades ago, they went into prisons and started interviewing serial killers to try to understand why they did what they did and to see if they could help them catch them in the future. For anyone who watches Netflix, that whole story is being chronicled right now on Mindhunters. Yeah, it was one of my favorite shows of the past year. Absolutely. And so what we're seeing now is sort of modern day mine hunters. They're, they're trying to figure out why these guys are going out and shooting a bunch of people. Why would they do a, a mass shooting trying to target multiple people? Rather, you know, if they had a specific grievance, you just go and kill the inv- individual person or something. Why do you have to do this on a larger scale? Absolutely. So what the FBI is, they've started doing research. They looked at case files of 63 active shooters, and they found some things that may be counterintuitive to people. They found that just a quarter had been diagnosed with mental illness, which is really interesting. That's that's such an interesting one, because I feel like after something like this happens, we always hear that there was some suspect mental instability in these people. And sometimes they had been referred to professionals at some point. Right. You do hear that. And it is interesting, too. Whenever I I cover a mass shooting, often people will say after I've gotten home, they're like, well, that guy must have just been crazy, right? Right, right. And people like to say that. But I think what the FBI is finding as they do the research, well, that's not really the case. And what they're finding is these guys really plan these things out. It starts usually with a grievance. They may have thoughts of suicide and they may think this is a way to go out with a bang and that they do take time planning these attacks and generally just don't snap. And and this is the sort of research that they hope will help people spot these people beforehand. And this is the type of research that people who are called sort of threat assessment professionals, these people whose job it is to pick out who may be the next attacker, either at a school or a business, they use this research as well. But there's only so far this research can go when they're looking at case files. They don't know what's going on inside these guys' minds. 
Of course, a lot of them do end up killing themselves or getting killed, but there are sort of a growing number that have survived in recent years. And so they want to interview these guys to see when, you know, when these grievances switch to violent plans and when these violent plans sort of switch to an attack happening. When does this happen and what are the triggers and all that sort of stuff? And that's what they hope to get by talking to these people. We had mentioned how common it's been getting four of the five deadliest shootings that have happened in modern U.S. history happened in the past six years. And right. specifically the, the Vegas shooting that happened, Stephen Paddock, we don't even know the motive. I think they kind of closed the case on that even because they couldn't find anything. There was no manifesto or something that he left behind. You're right. We need to set up these profiles of people so that we can try to figure something else when there is no other information. So if you look back at some of the past studies that the Secret Service and the FBI have done on these type of issues where they interviewed offenders, they were able to come up with some really counterintuitive findings that shed a lot of light on who these attackers are. For instance, in the 90s, the Secret Service took a look at um, people who had either tried to kill a famous person or a politician or actually succeeded in doing it. And they found a number of things. One of those things they found is that political ideology was not really a a big driver of these attacks, which you might have thought, you know, them being political assassinations. In fact, more often people did it for fame or because they were looking to commit suicide, the authors found. Yeah, I think some other interesting things that were in that study, they said that on average, each shooter displayed four to five concerning behaviors that people could tell, you know, hey, he's off, his mental health mm -hmm. seems wrong. And in a lot of cases, 41% I thought was quite a high number. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. 41% of these cases, the behavior was reported to law enforcement. And those are the worst ones where they say, mm -hmm. hey, we, you know, we had a beat on that guy. Someone did say something and then it falls through the cracks. I mean, it's so interesting to see what this study could lead up to. And even some of the people you spoke to said this study could shed a light on the role that the Internet plays in these shooters' preparation, or as you said, the willingness to outdo other shooters. Yeah, uh, I talked to a guy named Stephen White, who has a threat assessment firm up here in the Bay Area, and he was really interested in seeing if these shooters are sort of talking online and getting encouragement or, or, or doing research and finding out how to carry out these attacks. He was curious about the effect of that. People are really also interested to see and talking to the people who survived, these uh, mass killers that survived, about when did they tell anyone about it if they told anyone about it because they're really trying to figure out you know how how could we prevent this in the future right. by looking at these past attacks the only thing with this as exciting and and much needed as it is this was going to take years to to fully do a study and, and come out with some key findings absolutely i mean it's, it, it would take a long time they've already interviewed a couple people and i think they hope to continue doing it Zusha Ellenson, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Oscar. Really appreciate it. One of the more intriguing stories of the week was that of this mysterious spot in the ocean between Baja, California and Hawaii that had baffled scientists for a long time. It was just a dark void. But every year, great white sharks would be migrating there. Unknown reasons. Nobody knows. They, they'd leave during the winter and the springtime. They'd go to this place where there wasn't an abundant of their regular food source. 
So scientists put a bunch of tags on sharks. They followed them out there this past year. They did a big expedition, and they found a lot of interesting stuff. Sharks would get to this area and dive to the depths of this place called the Midwater, right before the ocean turns dark. And there was all sorts of bioluminescent creatures down there, squids, and a lot of different fish out there. Scientists still don't know exactly why they go. They don't know if it's for food or other mating reasons, but... They make this pilgrimage every year. So we talked to Peter Fimright. He's the environmental writer with the San Francisco Chronicle for more about the White Shark Cafe. What they found was a huge underwater community of small fish and squid and various other odd animals adapted to darkness deep down where the uh, sharks apparently dive in uh, specific patterns. And it was interesting that the sharks make it to this area because it's kind of in the middle of nowhere between Baja, California and Hawaii. And it's not really a lot of the main food sources that these sharks generally eat. So it was kind of a curiosity as to why they would be migrating there during the springtime. Yeah, it was. And it's still kind of a curiosity. Uh, and they normally, from about August to December, they're in the around the Fairlawn Islands and around in the Red Triangle around the Bay Area from uh, around Marin County to Santa Cruz. And there's plenty of fish for them. There's plenty of sea lions and elephant seals and otters for them to eat. And that's generally what they feed upon. And yeah, it was a curiosity. Why on earth would they leave this area in mass? They all go, apparently, to this place in the middle of nowhere that from satellite pictures just looked like it had nothing. It was in the middle of the ocean and there wouldn't be out there the kind of fish and animals that sharks eat. So scientists were very curious to find out why they went out there and they got some pretty interesting clues. And it also takes them about a month to get out there. So it's like a, you know, it's a long time for them to be migrating just to go to this weird spot that we weren't figuring out what was happening. Who conducted the research and how were they tracking the sharks? Well, it was the Stanford, uh, it was Barbara Block, who was the lead scientist with Stanford, the Hopkins Research Center and um, Research Laboratory and the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And they were, led a group of, I think it was, it was several uh, different research institutions that were on this research vessel that went out there. The portion of this area where it was really interesting was uh, what they were calling the Midwater, which is a region where it's just on the edge of complete darkness and right above that. And that's why the sharks were diving down. And that was the other Part of the curiosity, were they going down there for food and maybe trying to change up the diet, get some of these squid and other small fish that were there? But they were tracking them and they kept diving up and down. And there was also differences in the male and female sharks and what they were doing. Yeah, that's true. And the diving behavior, it does seem like they're, they must be eating something and they're tracking this midwater area where there's a, a lot of small fish and there's other predators that dive down there and eat, and it, but it's not clear what the sharks are eating and whether there's a mating component to this. And that's why the diving behavior was so interesting to them. And the males, they would all start off just diving uh, down deep and then coming up. During the day, they'd dive deep and at night they'd dive fairly shallow. And then suddenly the males in about April started changing their behavior and rapidly diving deep, as many as 140 times a day, constantly, and the females 
kept their same behavior. The reason for that is still a mystery. They were able to gather a lot of data this time. It was like a month-long expedition that they did, and they, you know, got a, a bunch of different readings from different tags they had attached to a lot of these sharks. And they're hoping some of this information will lead to more knowledge about how species are adapting to climate change. As we said, it, it was weird that they were migrating to this area to begin with just because their food source is different. But they're hoping to learn more about climate change and how these species are adapting there. Yeah, this is a barely understood region of the ocean, sort of a deep water right above and below the zone where uh, light can penetrate. And until recently, scientists didn't know really anything about this area. And recent research, they've discovered new, many new species, and they don't quite understand how things work, but it apparently the migration up and down in the water column is something they want to study and how they adapt, like you say, how they adapt to climate change will be a, a big thing and what changes in this uh, cold, deep water area happen as climate change happens and during El Nino's, things like that is all, all things that they'll be studying. And they do this every year. When are they heading out to the uh, White Shark Cafe? The sharks, they all leave the Farallon Islands region and the Bay Area at, in around, at around in December. And uh, it takes them a month to get there. And they're there from uh, late winter through spring and into summer before they turn back for also for unknown reasons and head back here. That's so interesting. I'm excited to see what the researchers are going to end up coming out with once they have a chance to really go through all of the data that they have. So it, it's uh, it's just fun stuff. And you never know with sharks. They're always surprising you, always doing something different. Peter Fimwright, environmental writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. There's a story that started earlier this month and had a big update just this past week. There was a mysterious closure of a place called the Sunspot Solar Observatory in New Mexico. It's part of the National Solar Observatory. They closed it down. It was evacuated of all its employees and scientists. That led to a lot of speculation online of what was happening exactly there. People thought there was anthrax. There was apocalyptic solar flares coming. There could have been foreign government espionage. And of course, since it's New Mexico and it had to do with the solar observatory, people thought there might have been aliens happening there. Come to find out, none of that was true. It actually gets far weirder. It has to do with a janitor, a mysterious black laptop. And like I said, the FBI had gone to investigate, which led to all the speculation. People didn't know what was going on. So we spoke to Brianna Sachs, BuzzFeed News reporter, for how a sketchy janitor brought down the Sunspot Solar Observatory. Literally, no one would have guessed this. It was a child pornography investigation that the FBI was involved in, which is why people were like freaking out about it. They were investigating. It turns out they're saying it was the janitor of the observatory who was downloading and distributing child porn from the observatory over the past few months. It's like a game of Clue. Who did it? The janitor. The janitor with a black laptop in the science room. You know, it was like, who could ever think of this? How were they alerted to this? How did they the investigation unfold? How did they find out it was him? Some undercover FBI agents were monitoring the type of activity. And in July, they noticed some IP addresses looking like they were sharing child porn files and 
they tracked three of them, and they were all coming from Sunspot, New Mexico, specifically the observatory. So they like started kind of watching this, and it was happening pretty much every day. So they alerted the director of the observatory, and it started this investigation and tracing it to like certain spots in the observatory. And they noticed there was like a pattern of when it was happening, and it came to three people who had keys to the facility. And then the timeline matched the janitor who started there a year ago, and he was in the the facilities during the time that the the child porn was being downloaded. The observatory's chief observer, uh, you know, one of the employees there, had found a black laptop at one point and said, this is weird, out of place. Let me check it. He opened it up, and he saw the disturbing content on there. This was a weird part of it, too, is he kept finding it, like, tucked away in empty offices, and he just kept assuming it was someone's, one of the, like, a students or something. And then when he finally opened it, he was like, oh... And the janitor wasn't helping his case at all either because they turned in the laptop. So it was missing at one point and he didn't know about the seizure. He, you know, they were keeping it kind of quiet still. And he started acting all frantic and anxious and saying all sorts of crazy stuff. Exactly. He kept coming up to the director complaining about the lack of security and that he was afraid that someone was going to break in. And he had said at one point he saw a guy in a truck who was naked with like a black box one night in the area. And then he like, was telling people there might be a serial killer. And then so he he was just incessantly pressing the director to change the door code. And the chief observer then became so concerned and just kind of freaked out because he became so frantic. And uh, so he alerted his boss that he was in fear for his safety. And so then the bosses consulted the NSO and the National Science Foundation. And without telling the FBI, they were like, we're shutting it down. And so that's why the crazy sudden evacuation happened. I think uh, my favorite thing the janitor had been complaining said that I think people are sneaking in at night to steal the wireless and (laughs) toilet paper. Yeah. (laughs) Five rolls of toilet paper have been, yeah, it was five specifically according to the search warrant. And then the best kicker was he was like, I should be able to just throw my laptop in a room and not worry about (laughs) having it being stolen. So one of the weird twists that I found out also was that the janitor's parents owned the janitorial contract for the observatory. So You know, he ruins everything for his family there. There's no charges been filed yet. They did go to his home and seize a bunch of stuff, but they haven't charged him with anything yet. You know, we reached out and they said they said it was an ongoing investigation. They they couldn't comment on that. So I am curious as to what the holdup is. Maybe they're still interviewing him. I mean, this they issued the warrant on the 10th and then I think searched his home maybe a few days later. So who knows? But it's definitely such a crazy situation. And right. one of the biggest things was like the, sh- the local sheriff had no idea what was going on. And we still don't know anything about the janitor specifically, like how old he is or anything like that. Yeah, we don't know much about him at this point. Wow. Well, at least in the meantime, the mystery has been solved. There's no aliens and the Sunspot Observatory is now open. It's also funny. They put it on their website. Hey, we're open again, ready to show you all the great science and public outreach Uh, we do here. You know, just trying to put a a positive spin on it. And, you know, they're not going to know that they're that seedy janitors doing bad stuff. No, I know. And it's funny, too. Even online, people are like, we don't believe it. It's the perfect diversion. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the truth is uh, they're, they're still believing that the truth is out there. Brianna Sachs, reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem. All right. That's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Thank you.